Hi there, I'm Jonathan Doidge. Welcome back to Sporting Lives, episode 12, part two. And this is with leading sports psychologist and a man who's not afraid to have a controversial opinion on his subject, Dr. Mark Nesty. Some real interesting stuff coming out of part one. If you haven't watched that or listened to that yet, then feel free to pop off and do so before returning here, or you can just jump straight in here. Now, among Mark's High profile appointments, shall we say, in sport. He has worked with Yorkshire County Cricket Club, uh, also with Aston Villa and with Bolton Wanderers. And so that prompted me to ask him, really, is it easier to deal perhaps with cricketers, for example, than footballers? Here's what he had to say. Gosh, it does depend on the individual. That's certainly one of them. So let's sweep that one away quickly. Um, Cricket, I think, after golf. So I've done a bit of work with golfers over the, over the years. And I used to think golf was the ultimate, and I still kind of do psychologically, but I have to say cricket, particularly particularly batting. But yeah, let's not let the bowlers no. into this one as well. Let's not Come take on. that away. But uh, in terms of the strange way that this sport is configured, where it's a team sport, it most definitely is. And it's, you know, complicated and yet it's also very very individual in a way that football isn't it really is you can be held to account there's figures all over the place and this time the figures mean something they're really hard and really objective and yet if you're obsessed with those figures you're not delivering so in terms of the nature and build of the sport cricket looks as a sport the actual game itself looks much much more psychological Football, on the other hand, as you quite rightly say, I know they hate us to say this if we've not been their level as pros, but it's simple. And when they're more candid about it, it's simple. The bit that's not simple is everything that surrounds it. So what they deal with. So if we take, let's go back to trust. In terms of getting trust from cricketers as opposed to football, it's 10 times easier with cricket. It's not easy because they're still under pressure and the professional athletes but it's considerably easier with them than with football. So it's not the football itself, it's everything that goes around it. I mean, the playing out there in terms of what you can do uh, because of the nature of the sport, I mean, it's, it's structured chaos. Cricket, the length of the game, all the, the variables that listeners know better than I do. Um, I've seen huge, number of factors to deal with and yet of course you're not meant to be considering yourself concerning those too much to perform well you're meant to be putting them on one side of your mind and the other side is one ball at a time football is very very simple in terms of the pitch but it's everything else that surrounds it that is where the problems lie are you um, you you clearly need to to do lots of listening and probably significantly less talking a lot of the time doing your job. But are there moments, uh, let's go into this this way. Again, back to that old uh, old school feeling of sports psychology, mind over matter, mm. you know, it's soft if he needs to talk mm. to a sports psychologist. Mm. Are there moments then where, I guess there are moments where you've got to be a shoulder to cry on metaphorically or possibly uh, literally speaking, are there moments when you go back to that player and say to the effect of, come on, pull yourself together? 
It's an interesting one because I'm going to answer this by starting from theory. It's like you're not talking about theory, but but it's relevant. So in psychology, there's a range of different theories and whichever one you subscribe to would affect, obviously, how you do your work. And I suppose I got myself into quite a bit of hot water over the years by subscribing to a non-American perspective. And without getting into the detail of all the different perspectives that there are, theories, um, I was dissatisfied with approaches that sounded either too mechanical, too structured, too impersonal, or the opposite to those, or it looked like the opposite, where they were too positive. Everything was positive. Everybody was to be positive. And I thought, this doesn't resonate with me, doesn't resonate with my beliefs, doesn't resonate with my life, the people I respect, my values. There must be something else. And I discovered something else, ironically, in North America, which was translated from various European languages, not English, but lots of other European languages. And it's called Existential Phenomenological Psychology. There you are. That, that's great, isn't Trips it? Trips off the that. tongue. Beautiful. But despite the term, this looked like real theory, as in, as in it held a really positive place for negativity, being positive about negatives, adversity, sacrifice, suffering. These words were in the book. They were not in any of the other psychology books. And I thought, this is balanced. So the approach I use, which is partly my experience, partly my values, and partly my reading and studying, and not exclusively, is uncomfortable. Not all the time, but a lot of it is. So if we take something like anxiety, its view of being nervous, which I'm sure to most people would sound like common sense, but it's not among psychologists, which is, no, sometimes being nervous is the best thing that you should be because it means you really care about something and that will precede a really great performance. Sometimes if you are too nervous, it'll choke you and you won't perform well. But whichever type of nerves or anxiety you have, they're all going to be bloody uncomfortable. Get on with it. Not a problem. Anxiety is not a problem. Feeling uncomfortable is not a problem. Stop this. Stop stress management unless it's needed. Stop removing anxiety with relaxation techniques unless they're needed. So I hear a lot about this now in terms of embracing it, but this is 150 years old psychology that's taken a long time to come round to the UK. So just to try and put that then into into context mm. and, and build a picture of it. So could it be then that you're saying um, you're on a coach to a football game on a Saturday afternoon, you're feeling a bit, the heart rate's going up already, you're envisaging what might be going on, you're feeling a little bit of pressure, the, the palms get sweaty. That's just normal. That's You should just expect that. And you don't need to sit there listening to an hour's relaxation tape on the M1, wherever it is you're travelling, um, to because actually you might then go out on the field not in that heightened state of arousal, is it? What you, um, mm. State of mind to, to be sharp enough to do the best job you can out there as a professional footballer. Well, just, just to add to it, whether you're a professional footballer or amateur or whoever you are, whatever sport, if you're feeling nervous the way you've just described it and you're also feeling excited at the same time, and some of my colleagues would say, well, you can't. 
you can't feel nervous and excited. It's one emotion or the other. It's mm. like, I'm sorry. The last human beings I spoke to said, we can actually have two feelings at the same time. Well, we don't understand theoretically. Well, I suggest you start from where people are. So if that person's feeling nervous the way you describe and feeling a bit sick and butterflies and the heart's pounding and, and they're excited, good place. They know it's a good place, particularly if they've been there before and it's led to good performance. You know the difference between being anxious when you've prepared and being anxious when you're saying, oh dear, this is a level beyond where I should be, or I actually haven't done the work and I'm going to get found out. That's a different type. So I just wanted a more balanced approach that would say, listen, positive stuff is good, positive thinking can be useful, but it's not sufficient. And actually, sometimes, if we're talking about developing the person psychologically, finding their own resources to deal with adversity. So everybody's talking about resilience training at the time. And that's kind of what that means. It means dealing with really uncomfortable things and yet finding a way to perform at a decent level. A coach, a manager um, might say, might give that, give a player that sort of metaphorical kick up the backside. Is that something a sports psychologist can also do? It's a really interesting difference between, and it's a lovely example because it's like, gosh, they almost did do that and worse. And uh, as you say, it's more metaphorical now, but it's like, well, I think that's the difference though between the coach and the psychologist, or it should be, is one of the ways I describe it sometimes to athletes and players, and they get it really quickly is, listen, the coach wants you to do the right thing. And there's usually a lot of you if it's team sport, so they might ask you a question, but usually they only give you two seconds to answer. They tell you, and that's fine, because that's good information usually, and it's important. But that isn't the best way to learn. The best way to learn is for you to tell yourself. Now, you can do that without another human being in the room, but sometimes if it's about something that you'd rather not look at, it's quite nice to have this strange figure who's usually part-time, so I've nearly always been part-time to make sure that I'm in and out. So inside and outside of it. So I'm not fully part of it, otherwise I just disappear into the wallpaper. Who dares to ask questions such as, given what you've just been telling me in our last four meetings, it seems to me that you need to consider whether this is where you should be. Should, given what you said is important to you in your life and as an athlete, should you be moving abroad? Should you be moving somewhere else? Because that's what you've been saying here. You haven't literally said that, but you've led to that, unless I'm misunderstanding my notes. Now that conversation can't go on with a manager or a coach. This is not all the time. I'm just, please understand, this isn't what I'm trying to do, clear, clear clubs of their players and athletes. <laughs> but at the same time, you want someone in the building who's either gonna fight for their place or wants to be there properly. That's what all the staff want. And so in that sense, it can be really quite uncomfortable. That was just one example. So I'll often get a look across the table and I'd like to swear, but I better not. But the look says something like, in more mild language, who the bloody hell are you to ask that question? To which the real answer is, I haven't asked it. You've asked it of yourself. I've just written it down and are providing it back, usually in some kind of report of some sort to the person to consider it and reflect. Ultimately, because you want somebody to be the best they can be. 
So yeah, it's um, I've had people in tears. I haven't shouted at them, but those tears are tears of frustration at what they see they need to do or have not been doing. And that's questioning. So it's hard questioning, provocative sometimes, and maybe sometimes I might have gone over the top and I have to roll back a bit. Any examples of that? Possibly when not putting words into somebody's mouth, but where I have, which I try not to do if at all possible, but with the internet, and I'm old enough not to have been able to do this, but now the click of a button, you can find out so much about someone before you sit with them. And I try now very hard not to do that. So maybe on occasions when I've actually had a little glimpse and more than a glimpse, a real glance and read, and now I've done what I know I shouldn't be doing, which is reading into their circumstances. And whether that's about, you know, difficulties that they are having that might not be real, because it could be just media, social media and hearsay, or that I've read into their life story um, and their career, different aspects, failings, issues that they've avoided. So try really hard not to do that as, as much as I can. Just let it develop yeah. naturally in that moment. Yeah. Just a reminder, folks, you're listening to Sporting Lives um, podcasts with myself, Jonathan Deutsch, Dr. Mark Nesty, sports psychologist with me today. Uh, once again, thanks to Ian Holding of Independent Content Services and Julian Barnes for helping facilitate this today. Please do subscribe if you're enjoying what you're listening to. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jonathan Deutsch to find out to any updates on future podcasts. We've got plenty of plans in the pipeline. What's the most jaw-dropping thing that a player, coach, person, professional sports person um, that you've dealt with has said to you? Hmm. That's a good question. This is not necessarily jaw-dropping, um, although to my colleagues, not all of them, but many of them in the university, it sounds like I'm a downer in universities, and I loved my university life, um, but I don't like these sorts of reactions in terms of a very very well decorated coach, decorated as a coach and decorated as a player at the very highest level of the game. A fantastic guy, really grounded. You would have thought quite open to the new ways of doing things, but with a, a nod to the past, said, I understand the value of this because it helped me. I found my way though myself. I can't have somebody doing this type of work because it might be misunderstood that it's for people who have problems that we will actually find more problems than there really are that it will if you like cause people to um, overreact and open up a can of worms and so I'm not prepared to go down that path even though I can appreciate the value in it now, when, I, when I'm told academic colleagues this, they're like, that's deeply irrational. Hmm. I think you need to sit and speak to that person. I said, I did. We had lots of conversations. And there was quite a lot of depth when you pushed to that. And so I think the bigger issue there is this is a controversial subject. And you can't force psychology on people. They need to be ready. They need to be convinced. 
doesn't mean you should do heavy sell. You should try to explain it, help people to understand. But I really think, unlike a lot of disciplines, particularly the physical disciplines, where if the athlete's sitting there thinking, I don't know quite why I'm doing this, it would be great if they appreciated it. But you can still get a strength change, even though somebody says, I don't know why I'm actually doing this. Psychology, you really need the person to be committed to the value of it. And for me, I was prepared to work with that individual because I respected that that was possible. Um, I think my academic colleagues thought that I was doing that just to stay in the building. And maybe some of that was true. That <laughs> wasn't the answer. I was kind of, I don't know if I was hoping for an answer like this, but when I said jaw dropping, it might have been, you know, I went home last night and found the striker and the left winger in bed with the wife and my daughter or something like that, you know. All oh, right, if you want to... Oh, there's loads of those examples, if you, if you want to, <laughs> If you want to drop this to the now defunct news of the world, then we can, we can go there if you want. I certainly um, remember seeing more from staff rather than from players. And staff opening up, particularly in the kind of intense life that they lead when they're on campaign, whatever the sport happens to be. I mean, all of those team sports, there's a huge amount of time spent away from families and with each other. It, it really is so close to the military metaphor. And uh, in terms of being the psychologist out socialising and maybe at one o'clock in the morning in a nightclub or wherever we happen to be, and members of staff, so not the players, I think actually the, a lot of the players, the modern players, are quite dull and boring, which is rather good in some ways. In other ways, it's not. That's another, that's another programme altogether. <laughs> but staff telling me things about their personal lives, about relationships, and then in later years, showing me things. I don't know if I need to go here too far <laughs> with this, but showing me things on... on it's like, ah, oh, that's, that's quite remarkable. Um, that... The red really is the right colour for you, that dress. <laughs> and it's like, well, the psychologist, you know, surely the psychologist is above making value judgments because psychologists are superhuman. They don't have any values. So it's like, well, this is ridiculous. I'm on duty all the time. And I'm, as, as the hour is moving, late into the night, I'm hearing all sorts of stuff. It's like, don't do marriage guidance. <laughs> Two more lagers, please. Carry yeah. on talking. Um, mm, must be uh, some interesting revelations, um, I'm sure. Mental toughness. What is it? Oh, gosh. Oh, is this one of those we've not got enough time left on the recording? No, from? we have. It's a term that was used and has been used by all sorts of people, not just in sport, <clears throat> but, you know, especially, particularly... In, in sport to talk about being able to react positively to adversity, to being able to deal with all the pressures that we've been talking about here and all the demands and get back on your feet. And so it should have stayed there. It should have stayed as the terminology that coaches use and unfortunately it entered into the universities and they started measuring it and it's like don't measure this term leave it as a term that's used amongst coaches and amongst 
um, people playing sport who have a good understanding really what it means don't start breaking it down into 47 different factors and then measuring it. it's not necessary not least because we haven't got enough of it at the moment it's not like the, the sort of shoe thing, is it, where you put your heel against the bar, pull, pull a thing up to the top of your big toe, and you know exactly what size you are. Um, what, what are the biggest challenges that currently face sports psychology then, Mark? I mean, I think if you were listening back to this, you, you'll, you'll see there's some suggestions there already in terms of, um, ironically, being too theoretical and being too detached from the world of sport. And then sometimes, um, if you like, people coming in who the real knowledge and understanding is just based on sport or just general life, and, and so lack depth and lack substance, what can they add to the knowledge of the coaches? I think now I can say this, I would have said it even when I was in the university, and it's probably why I never got a full professor status in the end and remained as an associate professor or a reader for many, many years. That's not the whole real reason, it's part of it. Um, is it would be great if this was not actually in the universities. I can't think of what the other institution would be, but somewhere where um, the applied aspect and the kind of research that supports applied work was more um, acceptable, more uh, understood and well-received. And I don't think that's where we are at the moment. So that's a real problem because when you go into sport environments, coaches and other staff expect you to have something different to offer but they expect that you will understand their culture if you don't understand the culture of performance sport you'll be going back out the door so to learn that means that our students and masters need to have placements they need to be in there you know doing real work alongside people who've done this work before and that is not happening and that's dangerous for this very, very new profession. There's obviously a lot of intelligence with these people who are doing these uh, these studies, but that's a kind of emotional intelligence then, if you like, and an addendum to, to that academic intelligence. And I know academia is about the cut and thrust of a good argument. Dr. Mark Nestle writes his paper, um, if I was ever bright enough to be a doctor, Jonathan Doidge might argue back with that theory and then proffer another one and, and so on and so forth. And that's what you need. And you don't take that... Personally, I wouldn't have thought, as long as it's reasoned, although maybe looking at the IRL, you do, depending on who it's come from, possibly a rival or something like that. So, yeah, it clearly sounds like a difficult challenge for sports psychology if there isn't um, a general consensus of getting people out there in the field. Surely you've got to have that. I, I think they want them in the field, but I think that the... They, who are the they I'm talking about? Well, let's, let's not get down to that because that could be dull to say that, but the general drift of people and organisations who could allow that and help that to happen. I, I don't think that they respect the field enough. I don't think they respect the people on the ground enough. I think that they will come across sometimes as, um, you know, they've just come over the hill with all the answers. They can come across as pompous. They can come across as... Um, a little bit arrogant at times I, I don't think there's enough and this is not just in sports psychology this is right across the piece we could talk about all sorts of other factors now if you wanted to bounce off into politics and we can go everywhere 
but in terms of recognising the kind of exactly you need to go to the pub indeed the kind of <laughs> the kind of knowledge and understanding that is in sport even though it's not always expressed in scientific terms and sometimes it's expressed in quite colourful language as well so I think that has caused real difficulties around acceptance so I think to actually get into those environments it's like listen you're the guest we are the guest in there so actually little will be a lot don't try to do too much i know you'll feel that you should and take time to understand the kind of knowledge that there is in there most top level coaches are really good psychologists they've acquired that through their lives if they're not they're going out the door and they just don't have it necessarily on a piece of paper absolutely yeah um Just one more really to fire at you, which is your own field as a sports psychologist. Who do you go to see when you're anxious about your own performance, matters, life, whatever it might be, when you've got your own maybe mental health issues to discuss? Who do sports psychologists go and see? Go up for a walk in the hills and just feel that's, that's... Get your mind over matter. <laughs> Indeed, that's that's the semi-serious answer. Which is a you know I, I do go places, whether it's uh, you know some people do this anyway in their everyday life. You know, go out and cycle or somewhere where you know in the countryside so we can think. But I know your more serious point is, is listen. You know, you need another. If you've been seeing another human being, is important for dialogue. Where's your other human beings? And then it's a reality that the person closest to you who typically usually will listen without offering too much advice. Their wife, my wife, sorry, I need to change that once for the era that we're in. And, uh, and she will um, sometimes help in ways of, of substance and content, and then that's fantastic. And she understands me fully and, and well. But usually she's just there, and whether she's truly listening, she'll often tell me she's not been, but that doesn't really matter because that's effective. And then I have a close colleague who has lived a similar life and he works at the moment in uh, rugby league and a couple of premiership uh, clubs at the same time, which is a massive tall order, as well as having an academic background. Um, and he understands. So it's speaking to somebody who really understands that world. Quite frankly, if he wasn't around, it would be pretty difficult I think I would probably have to, if I could, search out somebody who works in a business, high performance environment where there's lots and lots of stress, which can be good, of course, um, but lots of uh, fast moving, volatile environments where it's not always rational, but we're trying to do something that's quite difficult and, and speak to those people, listen to them, just get stuff off your chest. Two more. Um, I just briefly, once going back a long, long time ago now, before I started to work in media, I was working in financial services and I went for a job with another company, with a financial services sales, you know, advisor job, but basically to all intents and purposes, a sales job. And the interviewer introduced himself to me, sat me down, uh, explained his background first. He was a former psychological nurse and he was now a sales manager and he was building up his sales team asked me to tell me all about himself. That was pretty much the interview. 
Um, what did I what did I enjoy doing? And I remember at the time saying I played cricket, and I was captain of a team. Where do you bat? I said usually middle order. I try and work it so that everybody in the team's happy, and I'll slot in where we need somebody. Um, I open the bowling, you know, because that's just what I do. Blah blah blah. And at the end of the jo- the uh, interview, I shook my hand. Thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure meeting you, Jonathan. Disappeared off home late that night. Got the call. Um, Thanks very much for coming in today. Really appreciate it. Great chat. You've not got the job. So I said, go on, why? And he said, um, well, throughout that conversation, you were mainly looking at looking after your teammates and making sure that the equilibrium in the team was nicely balanced and you didn't want to upset anybody uh, as the captain of that team. And what I want in my sales team is somebody who's going to take that by the scruff of the neck, say to the best batsman, say to the best bowler, prepared to trample over other people to get those those sales what I'm drawing what I'm coming towards here is is that do you have those skills if you like as a sports psychologist would you be able to sit here in a conversation with somebody of similar ilk and go hmm not sure he's cut out for the job as an opening batsman on the back of what I've just heard or is he really a keeper rather than a striker Mm -hmm. he's a bit too defensive and not enough on the attack yeah I I think that's massively overstating um, the importance and value of psychological assessment. There's so many other things that are important. We're not just about our um, psychological qualities and skills, um, values and deeper character traits that allow you to do things that, if you like, are quite difficult for you. So I'm interested in all those sorts of things. I think that's that's the sort of thing that gives psychologists a real bad name. It's like too, too much. Yeah, um, I thought you were going to slightly take it in a, a different direction about had I ever seen players who were totally, as far as you could ever say this, self-interested and the team was just a vehicle to their aspirations or had I seen the opposite, people who could have really been something and didn't achieve what they were because they sacrificed themselves for the team. Go on. And I have. I've seen both of those. And so in the dialogue, that becomes apparent and then it becomes very, you can imagine, very uncomfortable. But I would say this, wouldn't I? But I am going to, and now I'd love to drop names. And of course I won't. I really would love to. Go on, just... I can't. Maybe at the very end, my last sad book that nobody ever reads anyway, might have a couple in. But what a joy it's been to, this sounds very unprofessional, because I've actually felt sometimes, I probably have when I've actually left the session, punching the air and saying, I knew that was possible. I knew that was right. Sitting with athletes, individual athletes, as well as footballers, rugby league, motor racing, cricket, and tennis, I said individual athletes as well, didn't I? From 1995 to this point now, and and swimming, and the most impressive performers nearly always are wrestling constantly with both of those things, and the very most impressive have found a place of, this is going to sound really strange, but a place of kind of detachment and peace from that conflict. That's the next level. In that if you were to look at what they're saying, you'd say, I didn't ask if this person is interested in how well they do, and I didn't ask about their team. 
because it's absolutely clear they see the two as completely interrelated. And those people exist, and they exist in the very best performers. So that's perfect psychology, and it's exciting to meet those people. So I knew I was right. <laughs> um, and then the future, and we know you mentioned, you've alluded to um, retiring from uh, John, John Moore's uh, University of Liverpool. Is any more... I, mean, I suppose you never give up as an academic, do you? Because you're constantly thinking about stuff and you probably work on things and maybe some papers, If, despite the fact that you're not doing a full-time lecturing-type role. Uh, what about the future of... Uh, well, the, your own future, but the future of sports psychology. So what are you going to be doing in the next uh, few years? And if we came back and did this podcast in, in a decade... Where would you want to have seen sports psychology move to at that point? Okay, I'll, I'll try and pick that one up at the end because that's less egocentric. But the, the egocentric one in terms of um, retiring, not really early, but I suppose academics consider it early because they go on to, they fall over if they want. And you're quite right. I don't know how you know this, but I have got a book and uh, I've, I've been involved in six or seven books before. Some I've written myself, some are co-authored. And I've never been satisfied with any of them, like many people who write. It just has never been the pure process I wanted it to be. They're never good enough because you run out of time, all those things. And it's like I promised myself that I would write one that was better than that and I would share it with people who really can write, you know, the really clever geeks who were at school, not people like us who were a wee bit better at sport. And, and this book is on um, almost psychology meets philosophy. And it's... but. That sounds very academic and dry, but I hope it won't be. It'll be on sports, and it'll be particularly focusing on the words and terms that I have heard on the ground amongst the people that many of the academics, particularly in psychology and sports psychology, are deeply embarrassed about and, and shy away from. And, and these words would be, which are all over sport. So courage, sacrifice, suffering, I've mentioned them before, creativity, intuition, and love. And definitely love. It's like, you can't use that word. It's like, but it's all over sport. Beauty's all over sport. Well, these words have got nothing to do with performance. They most certainly have. So it's a task. It's taken me two years so far. It looks a complete mess, but you're quite right. I will be continuing with that. And... The other project, we'll see if it comes to fruition, is uh, an organisation in New York who a couple of years contacted me out of the blue and it's like, I hope this happens because it's just so crazy and wonderful. And they are um, surgeons and chaplains and they work together currently um, trying to design research studies that will capture um, the attention of insurance companies because they've anecdotally noticed, this is the surgeons, different types of surgeons, have noticed that people who have a spiritual worldview of some sort, whatever that may be, religious or not, that their healing and rehabilitation is typically much faster. And so the surgeons are interested because they want to be great surgeons, and the chaplains are interested because it's their domain, and they saw that I'd written about how important spirituality and faith is to lots of premiership players because we have a global league, and they think, which is the little fly in the ointment, but they are Americans after all, wonderful folks, great energy. But one of the conversations around, Mark, can you design some prayer interventions to help? It's like, 
oh dear, that's not my boat. That's not what I'm talking about. So we're a long way apart from each other, but in another way we're not, because we're talking about how, particularly in high-level sport, it's not just psychological skills and qualities people draw on, they will draw on spiritual aspects of their personality to deal with performance pressures as well as injury and healing. And it's like, well, I'm going to mention it, even though everybody seems very embarrassed about it, this side of the pond. That sounds really interesting, that, that old link between sport, religion, um, all the catharsis and all those sort of things that um, sports sociologists will tend to talk about. Uh, what's the working title, by the way, for your um, Philosophy Meets Psychology book? There is no working title yet. That's right. the mistake I've made before. I'm looking forward to that coming out because I want to, in fact, we'll, you'll, we'll come back and do another podcast on that at the time because that sounds like a cracker. Mark, it's been uh, a brilliant experience uh, spending an hour or so with you talking about sports psychology and your own uh, career and involvement. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. It was good fun. Yeah, great to hear from Dr. Mark Nesty and uh, try to understand just to scratch the surface, really, on what goes on in the minds of professional sports people. Great stuff from him. More great stuff to come on Sporting Lives as well. Episode 13 is due out next, and that will be lucky for Henrietta Knight, who, of course, trained uh, the great best mate to three Cheltenham Gold Cups in succession in the early 2000s. A fascinating story about her life and time. She's still involved in the sport, though not as a trainer, as you will find out. So please uh, tune in for episode 13 on the cusp of the Cheltenham Festival that is to come very soon. And we've also got one in the can as well with former Bradford Northern and Yorkshire Centre and successful coach at several clubs, Peter Rowe. Plenty to say as well as uh, Pete. So um, looking forward to putting that one out in the coming weeks. Another one being recorded as well. Uh, at the start of March so uh, I think I'll keep that one just a secret for now follow me don't forget on Twitter on at Sporting Lives 1 or the Facebook page on Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge that's also at Sporting Lives 1 or on LinkedIn Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge we have a separate page on there as well and that'll keep you up to date with what's coming out um, give you those little teasing clips that we like to play to uh, keep you interested and hopefully you are do subscribe um, hit the subscribe button here on Podbean or iTunes, wherever it is you're listening. And of course, if you do prefer to watch rather than listen, then you can head to the YouTube channel, which is Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge. Another commercial done, another episode done. Uh, thanks for uh, your support and uh, do join me again next time then on Sporting Lives. Bye for now.